0: Today we're going to be in the second chapter of Mark's Gospel, so if you have a copy of God's Word, it's going to really benefit you to be there and to see the words that Mark chose to use to share the story of Jesus with us, the people who, here we are 2,000 years later, interacting with a book written that's supposed to be a biography of our Savior, of our Rabbi Jesus. If you don't have a copy of the Mark Scripture Journal, I know it's been several months since we used those, uh, but we have some out at the welcome desk in the lobby today on your way out. You're welcome to grab one. We have a whole box full, so don't worry if it looks like there's just two or three left. We have more. Um, That's a tool that's available to you at no cost. If that would be a help to you to journal along as we work through these scriptures, then you're welcome to do that. If you don't want to use that, you don't have to. Uh, But if you're like me, you probably had one before and then it got buried in snow and gloves and hats and coffee cups in the bottom of your minivan. I don't know. So if you need to get another one, that's okay too. You're welcome to do that. This is our 13th teaching in this series from Mark's Gospel. And as just a quick reminder to you, this book is made up of the stories of Jesus, not as Mark remembered them, but actually as Peter, Peter the Apostle, remembered them. You see, the way that discipleship worked in the ancient Near Eastern world is a rabbi would identify and call a set of disciples or we can think of them more as apprentices. That might be more helpful to you. And once that rabbi's life was over or once those disciples reached a certain maturity level or understanding, they would leave their rabbi and then they would go and call their own disciples but they would not present their own teaching. They would re-represent. They would represent the teaching of the rabbi that they had. So in Mark's case, Uh, Jesus called Peter, Peter was his disciple, Jesus died, rose, ascended, and then sent his apostles out themselves to be rabbis, to call other disciples and to bring his yoke, his gathered teaching to anybody who would hear it, and to multiply discipleship that way. And if you are a believer in the church like I am, uh, I think we can actually trace our lineage all the way back to those first disciples, that you and I are sitting here today because that process has been very, very effective. I make that point to you because it's not immediately obvious when you read the book of Mark. In fact, we have three different motifs, or you might think of them as themes or even threads that run through the book of Mark, and we've been trying to trace those each time that we get together. The first is Peter's voice. Anytime we open the book of Mark, we should be looking to see where is Peter? What is Peter doing? How does Peter feel? What is he thinking? It sort of helps pull the curtain back for you and I. If you've ever read through the book of Mark, there's many, many examples where the way that Mark tells the story is he'll say Peter by name, and then he'll lump the other 11 disciples together and just say, and the other disciples. That's not because Jesus loved Peter more. That's probably the way that Jesus told this, or Peter told the stories. Um, the way that this would have worked for Mark is after Jesus ascended, Peter went to Rome. And there in Rome, he began to make disciples. He met a young man named Mark, who he invited to join him. Mark said, yes, I'll do that. And so he began to follow Peter, and he heard the stories that are written in the book of Mark repeated out loud over and over and over again. This was basically Peter's four or five back pocket sermons were these stories. Anytime he could gather a group of people together in a home or in the catacombs under the city or out on the outskirts, maybe in a repurposed synagogue or something like that, he would pull these stories out and Mark was always there. The way that we got the book of Mark is when Peter was getting close to the end of his life, or possibly after he had just passed away, the early churches got together and said to Mark, Mark, you probably know these stories as well as anybody, and you're able to write, which is not a given in that time, in that day and age. Would you be willing to put pen to paper and to take the collected stories of Peter and produce something that we can use so we have a gospel, a set of good news to share? Mark did that. And even though Mark's name is on the book, these are Peter's stories, and they're told from Peter's perspective. So again, that's the first motif. The second motif that we trace through this book is human longings. Um, I'm going to borrow the six basic longings of the human spirit from Tim Keller and tell you that they are the longing for meaning, for satisfaction, for freedom, identity, hope, and justice. So each time we watch Jesus interact with people, that's part of his objective, You see, you and I were wired to not only need God, but to actually want him. When we come into contact with who he really is and we get out from underneath all the bad reputation that God earns because people represent him poorly or the church does stuff it shouldn't do, when we make contact with God, we realize that there's something about him that we've been looking for our whole life. He's that satisfying. And so each of these six longings, maybe not every single week, but a handful of them, one or two, will rise to the surface as Jesus interacts with people that are just like you and I. And we'll see him satisfy that longing and draw them to himself. The third motif is the identity of Jesus. And this is where we derived our name that we're using for this series. Who do you say that I am? Jesus will answer questions over time like, who are you, Jesus? What are you here to do? What do you have to do with us is a question that often the demons ask Jesus. Why are you here? Are you here to destroy us? We haven't made it all the way to Mark chapter 8 chronologically yet. Obviously, we're in chapter 2 this morning. We'll eventually get there. But in Mark chapter 8, there's sort of the climax of this rising action of the book of Mark where Jesus turns to Peter, of all people, and says to Peter, who do you say that I am? The disciples have been discussing Jesus' reputation. Lots of different people have put labels on him that don't really stick. And so Jesus turns to Peter and asks, who do you think I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the long-awaited snake crusher from Genesis 3. You are the one who has come to set us free. And it's in that moment that Jesus' full identity is revealed, and then the downhill action of the rest of the book is Jesus headed to the cross. But that's where we're trying to get to. That's what we're slowly building towards. So if it seems like Jesus' identity is a little obscure in Mark chapter 2, that's kind of on purpose. Jesus took his time revealing himself, realizing that at whatever point he told everybody who he really was, and they got it once and for all, that they'd pretty much want to kill him right away because he was that countercultural, because he got that much in the faces of the people who had the power and the authority of the church. But that background, those three motifs are kind of what to look for. If you weren't here when we studied Mark, Uh, Up to this point back in 2022, now you've got the tools you need to start to kind of comb through this with us and figure out where we're going to go. We'll read today beginning in verse 13. The first 12 verses of Mark 2 tell the story of a man who is unable to use his legs. He's lowered through a hole that his friends cut in the roof of a home in Capernaum. Jesus had been away from Capernaum, which is the hometown of Andrew and his brother uh, Peter, but he's come back. We assume that he's staying at Peter's house again. Peter probably wasn't thrilled that they cut a hole in his roof, but that's what it took to get a man healed. After that's done, Jesus steps away from the crowd and goes and begins to walk the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Let's read here in verse 13 of Mark chapter 2. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, Jesus saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, who was sitting at the tax booth. And Jesus said to Levi, follow me. And Levi rose and followed Jesus. And as Jesus reclined at table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, excuse me, there were many who followed Jesus. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to Jesus' disciples, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to those scribes of the Pharisees, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Now, I want to draw your attention back to verse 13, and I want to show you something that may not immediately jump off the page at you, but that I think is very important for us to understand. Do you see in your translation of the Bible the phrase, all the crowd? Or maybe if you're using a different translation, it says, the whole crowd. This is a really common phrase in Jesus' story. And if you were introduced to Jesus the way that I was, where you didn't really read the story chronologically front to back, you just sort of got bits and pieces of it along the way, you just assume that the crowds are part of the deal. In many ways, that's often how our largest churches in the West work. There's a big crowd that follows a famous preacher. We just kind of take for granted that that's the way that it is. But this is new. Here in Mark chapter 2, this is a pretty new phenomenon for Jesus. Prior to this moment, Jesus has had crowds gather But he's never had a crowd gather without him there and then come hunt him down. And that's going to be the new norm. It's going to become normal for him everywhere he goes. Even at the end of Mark 1, Mark tells us that after Jesus laid hands on the leprous man and healed him, that the reputation that there was a rabbi who could touch a person with leprosy and not immediately be cursed, that spread all over the region. And so now there are people who seem to just be out walking the roads, hoping to come across this Jesus of Nazareth. He's, he's become next level in the way that really no other rabbi that we have record of was. The first time Jesus uh, gathered the crowd was actually even earlier than the leprous man. You may remember when Jesus healed people all night long. It was the end of the Sabbath. The sun went down. All the sick and oppressed people came out of their homes and swarmed Peter's house. And Jesus stayed up all night and did a marathon healing session. But even that's an example of them kind of coming to where he is and meeting up with each other there. This is the point where now there is a crowd. There is a group of people who seem mostly interested in either the show they think they're gonna get when they see Jesus or the miracle that he could offer them uh, or maybe just the popularity that would come with showing up at work on Monday and being able to say, oh yeah, did you hear that Jesus was out in the countryside? Well, I was on the front row, so let me tell you how that went. That's just kind of the way we roll. People back then were not a lot different from how we are now. We like that sort of scoring points with other people by being able to brag about cool experiences. Now, after Jesus comes back to Capernaum, He heals the paralytic, right? Word has gotten out about him. And these people come and find him. And if you know the life of Jesus very well, it's highly likely, and I'm making an inference here, so I want to be really clear about that. It doesn't leap off the the book at us, it doesn't tell us this explicitly. But it's highly likely that Jesus is retreating to the shore of the water, as he often does, pulling back to pray, pulling back to just be in the Father's presence and enjoy him, pulling back to reset a little bit, to rest and recover, not to go on vacation but to intimately connect with God the Father in a way that energizes and restores and powers his ability to go back and do the ministry again. When the crowd finds him, they interrupt him. And thankfully, Jesus is gracious and kind, and so he's willing to teach them. But it's there in verse 13 that a huge distinction begins to crystallize that's gonna define a lot of Jesus next three years. Here's the idea. From here on out, there will almost always be a crowd around Jesus. And here's what the crowd does. They come, and they go. And they come, And they go, and they hear some teaching, and they leave, and they get some insight, and they go away, and they figure out, oh, hypothetically, theoretically, what their life could be like if they were to enter into the kingdom of God, but they walk away, they go back to their life in the kingdom of themselves, and they continue to do the things that they think are important that make them feel good, that bring them comfort and safety and security, they live in their own little echo chamber. And that means that contact with Jesus is only ever sort of like a a vacation from their regular life. Maybe that's how you feel about Sunday morning services at this church. I think that's a common concept for many of us today. But that's not the kind of person that Jesus is really looking for. He's not offended. He's patient with them. He's willing to teach when they come and interrupt his day off down on the water. Maybe he's skipping rocks. I'm sure Jesus could skip a rock all the way across the Sea of Galilee, right? Probably without it ever sinking in. I don't know. But he's out there and he's being, I believe, with his father and he's interrupted. He's patient. He's kind. But the crowd begins to stand distinctly across the gap from what we might call a disciple. This is the kind of person that Jesus is really looking for. And the difference between the crowd and the disciple is the crowd comes and goes. They hear teaching. They like what they hear or they don't. They have social commentary. They have a blog post or a tweet thread or whatever. That's fine. But then the disciple actually follows him. The disciple comes and doesn't go again. The disciple doesn't go back, doesn't need to let everybody else know how much clout he or she has gained by being basking in the presence of this amazing teacher of God's word. They have found someone who is offering them not just a set of ideas, but a life. And a life that is so fundamentally different from any life that they could ever gain for themselves that they're ready to leave everything behind. And that's going to matter for the rest of this story. Until Jesus goes to the cross, there will almost always be a crowd, and that crowd will come, and that crowd will go, and then there will be disciples, and they will stay. And eventually some of them will go too because they'll freak out when Jesus dies, but Jesus draws them back to himself. They're not perfect either, but there's something about his call on their life to come and go with him and to walk with him that is unique and that is different from the crowd. I think the way that Mark tells this story is totally intentional. I think the structure of the language of this chapter is on purpose. There's a dramatic twist when Jesus leaves this crowd that sets up sort of a philosophical showdown for you and I. Where on one side we have our mental image of what we might expect a Messiah to be, never fraternizing with the enemy, probably drawing his sword, attacking people who hate God, drawing a line in the sand. And then we have Jesus of Nazareth, who seems to have many more categories where he can be with and inhabit space alongside people who have not chosen to follow him yet, who are still in their hearts enemies of God. He can approach them with love. And with kindness, look back at verses 13 and 14 together. See this distinction where we have the crowd and then we have a new disciple. Jesus went out again by the sea and the whole crowd came to him and he taught them. And as he went along, so we can assume he's going back to Peter's house in Capernaum, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, which is where Levi worked. Follow me, he said to Levi. And Levi got up and followed him. So here you have a crowd who comes to get teaching and once they're satisfied, they leave and then you have a guy like Levi, who wasn't even really looking for God, necessarily. And Jesus came to him and said, follow me. And at that moment, Levi left it all. Now, we don't get that detail in Mark's account, but we do in Luke's account. Look at the screens for Luke chapter 5. This is how Luke remembers the same story happening. He says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, who was sitting at the tax booth. Follow me, he said to Levi. And listen to what Luke remembers Jesus saying. And Levi got up and he followed Jesus, leaving everything behind. That's a helpful detail that Luke brings to mind. Right there is all that you need to know about the difference between the crowd and a disciple. The crowds came and went. They were no doubt blessed by Jesus. I'm not here to to minimize Jesus' role in their life. They were often healed. They were given incredibly valuable insight into God's character and into their own lives, into the way that they should live with other people. But only the disciples followed Jesus. I love the added detail of Luke's account because Luke was a doctor himself. So Luke knows what it means to leave everything behind. A lucrative career, a position in the community that means that people look up to you and count on you and need you. That's the same kind of thing that Luke left behind when he chose to follow Jesus as well. Luke tells us that when Levi followed Jesus, he left everything. So what does that really mean for Levi? Well, in Jesus' day, no citizen of Israel was truly free. This is sort of the socio-political climate that these guys were born into. Rome had conquered Jerusalem. Israel as a nation was a puppet state, so they had their own king, but he was loyal to Rome and nobody really liked him. This is the lineage of the Herods. You may remember, if you know the Christmas story from earlier in Luke, that when Jesus is born, Herod is such a terrible guy that he just has every baby boy slaughtered. Just came to mind, nobody stopped him. He thought, that makes a lot of sense, that will protect me, so we'll just do that. These are the kinds of guys that are, quote-unquote, ruling and leading in Israel, and they're totally loyal to Rome. They have no loyalty to the average Hebrew citizen. Now, you and I don't really see empires conquering empires anymore in our day. Most of our wars are wars of ideas or politics or philosophy. But if you can, imagine with me that you woke up this morning and you opened your phone and immediately there was a notification that the Roman Empire was back and that it had conquered Anchorage. So now we're all Romans against our will. We didn't fight in any war, it just happened. They sacked the capital, they control all the politics and the money, and now you and I belong to Rome. Rome is a long way from Anchorage, just like Rome is a long way from Jerusalem. So the empire can only have so much authority here. One of the ways that an empire exercises authority in a puppet state like Israel is that they tax you on everything. So to follow the analogy as if Rome had taken over Anchorage last night, Imagine these kinds of taxes added to what it already costs you to live in a very expensive state. Taxes for parking your car at the grocery store or other semi-public places. This was a common tax in the Roman Empire. Um, additional sales taxes, which we're blessed in Anchorage to not have any of, duties on all imports and exports. So every banana or avocado or head of lettuce that you buy that wasn't grown here because they don't grow here would be even more expensive than it is. And all the oil that we ship out would make us even less money toward our annual PFD because the Roman government would take a cut right off the top. We'd be taxed on even our vehicles itemized down to the number of wheels. In the Roman Empire, how many wheels the cart or wagon that you carried behind you had increased or decreased your taxes. It was that itemized. This is what it's like to be a Hebrew national in Jesus' day. Nobody's excited about Rome. Nobody's wearing their Team Rome jersey or waving the Roman flag outside their home. They are quietly resisting. Later, after Jesus ascends, there will be some rebellions that will fail and Rome will absolutely crush and destroy Jerusalem. But for now, most people are just generally uncomfortable and unhappy because they've been conquered by this empire that they don't have the power to overthrow. Here's what that has to do with Levi. That tax system is bad news if you live in Jerusalem or Galilee or Capernaum. Levi's job is to collect those taxes. So if everybody hates King Herod, who decided to kill all the babies because he is loyal to Rome, they really hate Levi, who not only represents that same Roman government, but also lives down the street and shops at the same grocery store that they do and comes by their house and steals that last little bit of money that they were gonna use to buy their daughter's birthday present this year. That's all Levi is to these people. Everybody hates Levi. Here's a helpful quote for you from Kent Hughes, who's a retired professor from Westminster Seminary. He says, the Romans collected their taxes through a system called tax farming, which is similar to farming out franchises such as McDonald's fast food restaurants. They assessed a district, a fixed tax figure. Then they sold the right to collect taxes to the highest bidder, in this case, Levi. The buyer had to hand over the assessed figure at the end of the year and could keep whatever he gathered above that. The obvious potential for extortion was compounded by the poor communication characteristic of ancient times so that the people had no exact record of what they were to pay. So if it's not making sense to you yet, it's Levi's job to come by your house, tax you the full amount that you owe to Rome, and then squeeze you as hard as possible, coerce and threaten you to pay any more than that that he can convince you to do. He wants as much of your money as possible, and he's just gonna keep that. And as your family struggles, And as you guys can't make ends meet and you can't give gifts at holidays and you can't feed your guests when they show up in the middle of the night per Jesus' teaching last week on prayer, there's no bread in the house, what are we gonna do? This is a very real situation that's juxtaposed by watching Levi build a bigger and bigger and bigger house just down the road with your money that he stole from you and there's nothing you can do about it legally. So when Jesus walks back into Capernaum and looks at Levi and says, follow me, He is the very last person on the face of the planet that any of the other disciples would have ever expected Jesus to make eye contact with, let alone to invite him to join their new thing and follow Jesus. This is as scandalizing and as shocking as possible. It would be as if you and I knew that there was a uh, Russian spy who lived two doors down and you found out that I was using every ounce of my influence all of my time. I wasn't sermon writing, I wasn't having meetings, I never came to the office. All I did was hang out with that guy because I really wanted that guy to be a part of what we were doing here. Some of you would go, what are you talking about? That guy is a foreign national, he's a threat to national security, he goes against a lot of what you do for a living. How dare you fraternize with somebody like that? Sure, he can become a Christian later in somebody else's city on God's timing, but don't bring him around me. This is very much the posture not only of the other disciples, but of anybody who would have gone to synagogue in Capernaum, just your average Hebrew, and it's certainly the position of the Pharisees, the law-keeping party in Israel. The last piece of the puzzle that is important for you to know, just so this really sits on you heavy, if you were a tax collector, even if you were born in Israel, and you served Rome, you could not be called as a witness in court because you were already considered so corrupt that your testimony had no value, and you were not allowed in the synagogue. You couldn't even come to church. Like, like everybody would, would leave the synagogue if you came in because they felt like they were betraying even God by spending time with you. And here we are within probably the first three months of Jesus' ministry and he looks at this guy and says, come with me. And what's crazy is Levi does it. He leaves everything, Luke says, all of it. He leaves the Roman Empire behind. He leaves the good money behind, the job security behind, being buddies with other rich people in town who are also loyal to Rome. You have to know these guys have their own little community in that region because nobody else will talk to him or, or acknowledge them. He's abandoning all of it, attempting to jump back into a society that has already rejected him and that if you really think about it, he has also rejected fully, hoping and praying that this Jesus can do what Levi couldn't do for himself and what nobody else could do for him either. So what happens next? Well, Levi throws a party. That's verse 15. Let's read it again together. As Jesus reclined at table in Levi's house, many tax collectors, so not just Levi, but the other guys kind of regionally that are around that bump elbows with Levi at the annual tax collector summit or whatever that they have, these guys are at dinner. And just the broad category of sinners, just anybody who does anything wrong on a daily basis, they're now gathered together and they are reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is not hanging out around the edges of this party. He is at the table on one elbow in ancient Near Eastern style, and he is eating, and he is drinking, and he is communicating, and making eye contact with, and lovingly resting his hand on the shoulder of all kinds of people who are outcasts from Jewish society. Why? Mark tells us because there were many who followed Jesus. There you go. There's a crowd that comes and goes. Maybe that crowd is polite. Maybe that crowd is ceremonially clean. Maybe that crowd looks like Jesus and agrees with Jesus on a lot of things in theory. But here's Levi, and here's all the other dirty, filthy tax collectors, and they're actually following from Mark's perspective. And Mark would know as a disciple who has also left everything to follow Jesus. These guys are getting together, and I believe the nature of this party, similar to when Jesus calls Zacchaeus, the short guy in the tree, I think that this party is a celebration of the newly minted apprenticeship of Levi. This is him getting everybody together and going, hey, I found a rabbi and he called me. I know, I didn't think he ever would either. But here I am, I'm going to go on this journey, we're going to walk to Jerusalem. This guy's talking about the kingdom of God, he can kick demons out of people, he can heal the sick. And so all these people that have not been to synagogue in years because they're not allowed to are finally making contact with the God of the universe because Jesus is sharing a cup and a plate with them. It's pretty amazing. Easy to miss some of this stuff when we read through the Bible too fast. Can you see the drama that's unfolding now? It's a little bit more than Jesus just grabbing his fourth or fifth disciple and having dinner on the way. Bring along your new understanding of the distinction between the crowd and the disciples. Peter is telling us in Mark's gospel that the gathered tax collectors and the rest of the party guests who've been living outside of God's plan are now with Levi because they follow Jesus. They're not just there for the party. They also have been impacted by this rabbi. They're not just another crowd. Now this is not what any of us would have expected given the context of what it means to collect taxes for Rome in ancient Israel and the shock of what Jesus is implying by inviting a wicked tax collector like Levi to follow him, it's not lost on anybody in town. This is already a place with a pretty strong gossip mill. We've seen this play out a couple of times. Jesus kicks a demon out of a guy in the synagogue. Everybody finds out within a couple of hours. Jesus moves over to Peter's house in Mark 1. Everybody knows where to find him as soon as the sun goes down so that they can go grab him. Jesus takes a walk down to the seashore. Suddenly a crowd appears with too many questions for Jesus to answer. It's obvious that news is traveling fast in Capernaum. So we shouldn't be surprised. When Jesus' opponents, the lawkeepers, catch wind of what's going on and decide to involve themselves in a way that's totally inappropriate. Their upturned noses lead them right to Jesus' apprentices, where they question and challenge what exactly it is that Jesus thinks he is doing in the home of public enemy number one. So let's look again at verses 16 and 17. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, that's important, we'll come back to that. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, to the law keepers, it was an unforgivable offense for Jesus to spend time with these kinds of people. That's the way they would have said it. Jesus is supposed to be a teacher of the law. He's supposed to be a rabbi, just like most of these Pharisees are. And they could not comprehend that he would totally disregard Their ancient customs of ritual cleanliness, of separation from sinners, and condescension in God's name. That was their bread and butter. They were scandalized. And the cowards that they are, they don't approach Jesus. They're not gonna come into the middle of the party where Jesus probably is in the seat of honor, where Levi has placed him so that he can speak and everybody can hear him and everybody can meet this amazing new rabbi who's already begun transforming Levi's life. No, they go to the apprentices of Jesus. They pull the disciples to the side, into the shadows outside of the backyard probably, and they begin to cross-examine these guys who haven't been following Jesus very long at all, attempting to trap them and trick them and corner them so that they can try to ruin Jesus' reputation. Now, Jesus hears about this, which is classic Jesus, and he immediately involves himself. He comes out, maybe to rescue his apprentices, but I think really to confront these guys and to give them an answer, even though the questions that these lawkeepers are asking are not really genuine questions. They're the kinds of questions that you ask when you're in an argument with somebody else because you want to beat them. They're not questions that are meant to lead to understanding. But Jesus takes them seriously. He gives them a real, genuine answer to their question, knowing all the time that they're trying to play him. And his answer has two pieces. First, he makes a statement that he knows that they can't disagree with. If the Pharisees are anything, they are logical. They are students of their day and age, and they love to debate and fight about semantics, word choice, sentence construction, the age of certain teachings. They had a whole rabbinic tradition that they would carry around along with the Old Testament scriptures, and they would fight and debate about what people thought who lived thousands of years ago. Similar, unfortunately, to certain parties within the modern church who are obsessed with guys who have been dead for 500 years. These Pharisees spent all of their time debating with each other to try to climb this man made social ladder within their religious world. And if that sounds really gross, good, it is. It's really gross. It doesn't help anybody, it doesn't even help them. So Jesus comes to them and he says, Hey guys, basic logic would tell us that doctors exist only as long as there are sick people. So if I'm a physician, It stands to reason that you'll find me with sick people, right? And I think if I'm a Pharisee at that point, I'm going, okay, that makes sense. Maybe this guy isn't as outlandish as we thought. He sort of speaks our language, the logical thing. He's playing our game. But then, while they are chewing on that statement, Jesus just cannonballs right into the middle of their prejudices and their backwards thinking by making a statement about the kingdom of God, something that none of them think he has the authority to speak about. He should be teaching the rabbinic tradition. He should be teaching the Old Testament law, not making authoritative statements about who God is and who can and cannot enter into his kingdom. Jesus is here for one reason, he says. I came, that's his answer. I came, which is itself, this whole metaphysical thing about where did he come from and why and who is he, but he says simply, I arrived, I am here, not to call the righteous, or I think he's being ironic, those who would consider themselves to be righteous. He says, I came to call the sick. So not only am I a doctor and here are sick people and you can agree with that, but I'm also not gonna play your polite game. You are gonna find me with people like this for the rest of my life. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't miss what Mark and Luke are doing with how they set this story up. Remember the difference between the crowd and the apprentice. The crowd just comes to Jesus for teaching and leaves. The apprentice follows because they are called into the life of a disciple. So what is Jesus saying? I can just picture him pointing back through the crowd to Levi, over the moon, Levi, free from the burden of the guilt that he has carried for decades as he has robbed and cheated his fellow countrymen. In the name of Rome, a government that won't acknowledge his God, doesn't think he should ever go to the synagogue, and really doesn't care about him personally. And for the first time, probably in Levi's adult life, somebody has looked him in the eye and said, you have a way out of this if you want it. And Levi wanted it. He wanted it so bad, it doesn't even seem like he had to think about it very long. He just got up and said, I'm in. If this is it, I'm in. If this is what it takes, I'll go. And here's Jesus face to face with these law keepers and I think he's pointing at Levi and he's saying, do you see Levi? Look at him. Did you hear that when I called him, he got up and left everything to follow me? Did you know that part of the story? You heard that right. I called him. I called him. I am going to keep calling people just like him. I'm gonna keep calling people that none of you will even look in the eye. So get used to it, is I think what Jesus is saying here. I don't think he's being unkind. These guys came to him and started this little throwdown in Levi's backyard. But he's saying, this is what it is all about for me. And more importantly, not only am I here to do it, it works. He's different. And none of you can do that. None of you Pharisees with your intellectual chess games and your wordplay and your battles about semantics, you have done nothing for the people in this city. Not an ounce have you helped them. And here is Levi and we've had one dinner together and the man will never be the same again. That's the point of the story is that Jesus is changing the expectations of everybody. He is not just here to be another rabbi. He is not here to just present to even you and I a nice clean set of teachings that we can wield like a weapon when we bump up against people who disagree with us on social issues. He is handing us a life and we are like Levi. We don't have another option. Maybe you think you do. Maybe you're still climbing the ladder in the tax collecting world. And yeah, you've had to kick some people to the side and you've had to make some less than uh, honest decisions along the way, but you did it in the name of your family or having more savings or being more prepared for the future. Jesus is saying to you, you can come along. You're gonna have to do it like Levi. You're gonna have to leave everything. But if you will, you'll find what you've been looking for. And that's the one thing you don't have. You might have everything, but that everything has a hole in the middle of it. And only Jesus can fill that hole. My friends, Jesus came for the wrong crowd. Jesus came for the junkies. He came for the deadbeats and the losers. He came for the washed up and the cynics. He came for people who know that they need rescue and people who wonder if God even cares. And Jesus is right. Following him does work. It's the only thing that works. So here's how we'll finish today. I want you to see this story from Levi's perspective. So if you can, turn in your Bible to the book of Levi. Oh, I forgot to tell you that part. Uh, Levi got his name changed to Matthew, so I mean Matthew. Turn to Matthew, Matthew's gospel. Levi, the scum of the earth tax collector, is changed into Matthew, the evangelist and gospel writer. That's what's happening here. And Matthew remembers that day just as vividly as Peter does and just as vividly as Dr. Luke. He wrote about it in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. If you can't get there in time, we've got it for you on the screens. This is how Matthew recalls that day, that Jesus went on from there And he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Notice that Matthew doesn't include his dad's name. You can do with that what you will. Maybe he didn't want to be known as Alphaeus' boy in town. I'm not sure. But Jesus says to him, follow me. So Matthew got up and he followed Jesus. And as Jesus was having a meal in Matthew's home, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said, Those who are healthy don't need a physician, but those who are sick. Now, catch this detail. Only Matthew remembers Jesus saying this. Jesus says, Go and learn what this saying means I want mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Matthew remembers what Peter and Luke don't recall this phrase, Go and learn, I want mercy and not sacrifice. Now, you may not know this, but that's actually a quote from the Old Testament of the Bible, from the scroll of Hosea, specifically Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. Here's the whole quote in context as it was originally written. God is asking a question. He says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? And what shall I do with you, O Judah? Those are just different names for uh, the nation of Israel. Those are some tribal leaders that sort of stand in as figureheads, but for the sake of argument today, he's asking his people, what am I going to do with you? The same kinds of people who eventually become the Pharisees, the law keepers of the New Testament. He says to these kinds of people, your love is like a morning cloud. It's like the dew that goes early away. It's here and then it's gone. That's what your love is like, he's saying. This is not good news from God's perspective. He's indicting these people. Therefore, I have hewn you with the prophets. I have slain you with the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. Which you could argue is kind of what Jesus is doing there in Matthew's backyard, Uh, in Luke chapter 5 and Mark 2. There's a little bit of slang with words going on, where these guys are trying to fight with God in the flesh, and Jesus is going, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not playing that game. This is what I'm here to do. Now catch the phrasing in verse 6. For I want mercy and not sacrifice. I want the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In case it's not immediately obvious to you, God has always had a very low tolerance level for fake faithfulness. It's just not his thing. He's not into it, He's not impressed by it. It doesn't do anything for him. It's not a fair representation of who he is to the world. It's you wasting your time and kind of wasting his, but you can't really waste God's time. So it's just you wasting your time. It's you treading water. It's you choosing to keep all the same problems, all the same habits, all the same sin addictions that drive your life. Sure, you can put a mask on and impress me and everybody else in this room two hours a week. Good for you. Jesus has a lot more in mind for you. The phrase that most English Bible translations employ to describe Using God to fake other people out is the phrase self-righteousness. This is what God is getting at. Jesus decides in Levi's yard to bring up one of the heroes of the Pharisees from Hosea 6 and to slam dunk on them with the words that they supposedly had studied and memorized and put in their hearts. He's saying to them, Loving on sinners, eating with sinners, generally hanging out with messed up people, these are the clearest possible application of Hosea 6. Jesus is trying to communicate to these guys that if you understood any of what you teach, you would have been at Matthew's house yesterday having dinner. So where were you? And what's different about you and I? Why is it me who has to be the one who's here to call those who need a doctor? Why are you, these people who, to follow Jesus' allegory, have been training in quote-unquote medicine, God's word, for decades, why are you so far away from the people who need it most? I mean, in a nicer way, Jesus is basically saying, it's surprising that he keeps his cool here, what is wrong with you people? You have everything you need to transform your community in the name of a loving God. And instead, you're out here throwing stones. This is what it looks like to be faithful and merciful and to acknowledge God, according to Matthew's memory of Jesus. Jesus hanging out with the tax collectors is as much an act of love for God as it is an act of love toward those tax collectors themselves. To call out Matthew to eat in his home with all of his socially despicable friends and coworkers is Hosea 6. It is faithful obedience to the Father. So I'll ask you, is it possible that the outworking of dedicating their lives to perfect obedience to God's law has actually led the law keepers away from Yahweh instead of leading them toward him? Not only is it possible, my friends, I think it's evident. And that kind of attitude didn't stop in Matthew's dining room that day. We are predisposed, you and I today, right now, are predisposed to reject anybody that we think of as a social outcast or a misfit. If we're not careful, we'll be just like the law keepers. Now, don't misunderstand me. None of us would ever say anything like that out loud, right? Because we're nice and we're polite. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But in practice, we live in a way that shows just how blind we are to our own tendencies. Sure, we loathe the idea of pushing anybody away from Jesus and his kingdom, but oftentimes for us, we come to Christ and in an attempt, maybe misguided, maybe not, but in an attempt to grow in our faith, we try to find a church that's just like us eventually most of us arrange our lives so that we are with non-believers basically as little as possible unfortunately we attend a small group that's 100 percent christian we greet people we reach out and touch people we welcome people to church who are already christians our kids play on sports teams with kids from families that are all christians we only invite christians into our homes for dinner we only have play dates with christian parents we only spend the holidays with christians the result for many of us is that God in his infinite mercy saves sinners not in collaboration with us, but in spite of us. And he will, just like he saved Matthew that day in spite of those lawkeepers. They couldn't stop him, and you can't stop him either, but you could do it with him. And that's the vision that he has for your life, to collaborate with him. That's the thing we talked about last week, rooted in the opening pages of scripture, that God wants to do this with you. What an amazing and unique opportunity that only Jesus can offer you. But for many of us, we are not so much Matthew hosting dinner so that our lost friends can encounter Jesus as we are lawkeepers policing our reputations and keeping up appearances in the name of some kind of external staged holiness. No, none of us wear the jersey of a Pharisee, but many of us are still out there on the field playing the law keeping game. So here's what I can tell you. I can tell you today that Jesus is the friend of sinners, even if nobody else ever has been your friend in Jesus' name. Even if you aren't a friend of any sinners, Jesus is. And I can tell you that Jesus is lovingly and perfectly the enemy of the self-righteous. Even if everyone else you know is really impressed with how you seem to have it all together, if you're not walking in humility and following Jesus to the lost, you're setting yourself against his will. Now, there's no way for me to know which of these two groups you see yourself in. But I'll tell you this. If you do not count yourself as a friend of Jesus, well, the kingdom of God is open to you. You are the same kind of person that Jesus came to seek and save. You may be lost according to a different set of circumstances. But if you've wandered far from the heart of God and the love of God, well, the way is open to you through Jesus Christ. And if you do consider yourself a friend of Jesus, but maybe you've been living the life of a law keeper for a few weeks or months or years, I'm here to tell you that law keeping doesn't have to have the last word in your life. That's the beauty of Jesus, is you're never out of chances. You get to go back to him. You get to repent again. You get to say, here I am. And he says, I never left. (laughs) So what do you want to do next? Who's around you that we can impact? Here's what I've been thinking. Here's what I've been seeing. Here's where I want you to go and what I want you to do. So as you go today, this is the last thought I have for you. Regardless of which group you're a part of, just consider the words that Jesus gave to the law keepers in Matthew 9.13. Because if it's a good enough answer to change their hearts, if this is their inroad into changing their wrong perspective and following Jesus, then it's good enough for you as well. Levi never forgot the rest of his life that Jesus said, go and learn what this saying means, that I want mercy and not sacrifice. So church, I'd like to pray for you and I'd invite you to pray with me and then we're gonna sing to the Lord about how good he's been to us. Father, we love you and we're gathered in your name as one body, Um, We run the risk, Father, any time that we come to your teaching of receiving it as condemnation. And so I pray that you would do the work in the hearts and minds of this church that I can't do. I can present what I think are the facts. I can try my darndest to make it clear and plain, God. But I can't change anybody's mind, and I can't protect anybody from taking this the wrong way. So I pray, God, that you'd meet us here, that you would, with great warmth and mercy and compassion, remind us that today is not the last day of our lives, at least as far as any of us knows. And that we have an opportunity today, once again, to remember what's good and right and true and to go with you instead of going against you. That's our simple prayer, God, that you would draw us to yourself, that those of us who've known you for a long time would take one more step into your presence today. And for any of us who don't know you at all or who've been scared to say that we don't or to ask someone else, how can I jump into that, God, that maybe today is the beginning of seeing a Jesus who is so empathetic and compassionate and real that we just can't walk away with the crowd again. Father, we love you and we trust you and we pray these things in the name of Jesus, amen.